How's everybody doing? You good? You good? Are you sure? I mean, you know, we, if you're a Duke fan, we lost last night, so we can just... Congratulations, Tar Heel fans. Congratulations. Not only that, we all lost an hour of sleep. So I'm sure you're dragging a little bit. Not only that, it's cloudy and dreary outside. So here's what I know. If you came to church today, you love God. And God's got a blessing in store for you today. I'm so glad you are here. Uh, hey, just FYI, because we got some young people in, in the church here today. Um, stay away from fire. <laughs> if you read the chapter in the book, I don't say this on the video, but like I accidentally lit an entire block of woods on fire with that magnifying glass. And then I ran to a neighbor's house and beat on the door and they called the fire department. And I was so scared until I saw those big red trucks and ladders pull on the scene. And then I was like, this is stinking awesome. <laughs> and then I ran and never told anybody about it. It was crazy. It was crazy. So don't do what I do when it comes to fire, young people. Hey, uh, can you just help me all the campuses celebrate? Welcome all the campuses. Church Online, Kajonjo, Thika Town, Columbia Campus, Garner Campus, Sanford Campus, Hillsboro, Wake Forest. And last but not least, surely the Durham campus. So, so glad you were here. You guys have been buying the books like crazy and the publishers have not been able to keep up with them the last few weeks, but I have good news for you today. We just got another shipment of the books, Wrecked and Redeemed. And remember, I'm not making a single penny on the sale of these books at New Hope Church. And so that gives me a chance to just go buy one. If you, it's, it's early in the series, so, go, so get, get one, you can catch up. But also buy several and give them out to people and invite them to church. I'm sure you know somebody who needs Jesus. And that's what this book is about. It is all about getting the hope of the gospel out. And uh, you guys have heard me say that I'm not real comfortable talking about my book. I don't know why. I just feel awkward about it. I'm also not comfortable about what I'm getting ready to share with you. Um, but I need to share this with you. One is my staff are like, dude, you need to talk about this. And then secondly, um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous and I need you to pray for me. You guys remember Sheila Walsh? Sheila Walsh came, woman of God, preached the word of God uh, here at this church, did a phenomenal job. Sheila, who's internationally known, was in my office that day, and uh, she asked for a book, so I gave her a book, signed it, gave it to her. I thought that was the end of the story. She read the book, and then she went back to Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, um, and she hosts a show quite often called Life Today. And I don't know if you recognize this couple. I'm sure you do. They're on TV across this nation and across this world. They, they literally are syndicated in every city in America and internationally. And um, they, they draw a crowd, uh, an audience of up to one, not million, but billion people at the peak of their shows. And uh, Sheila gave them this book. James and Betty Robinson, they read it, and uh, they are flying me to be on the show this Tuesday. And um, <clears throat> I 
That's the largest audience I will have ever spoken to. And uh, hey, here's what I want you to pray for me, okay? I'm gonna be on Tuesday night from 5.30 to 6.30. It won't be aired on Tuesday night. They're, they will air it uh, the week after Easter. We'll keep you posted. But here's what I want you to be praying for me, please, on Tuesday evening, that, that God would just make a big deal out of Jesus. I don't care if my name gets out there. I don't even care if the book gets out there, though that's what they want to talk about is the book. The book is only to point people to Jesus. Remember John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's my heart prayer. And I'm nervous as all get out. So pray for me on Tuesday in light of that. Well, I, yeah. Let's pray together. Father, would you... Um, would you let your glory, as we talked about last week, would you let your glory fall? Would we see today your holiness, your divinity, your splendor, your majesty, that glory as an attribute that we talked about? But Father God, I pray also that we would embrace glory as a verb, that we would praise and boast in nothing other than your son, Jesus. So Father, would you take our minds today and would you think through them? Would you take my heart today? Would you fill with it, Lord God? Would you please take my lips today? And would you speak through them? For if you do not speak, then absolutely nothing of any significance will have been spoken. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've been following along closely, and I gotta tell you, I gotta give props where props are due. I've never seen you as engaged in a message series as you are this series. I've never seen so many of you taking notes. Many of you are bringing journals and notebooks, and I just, I, I, I commend you for that. But if you've been listening closely, you've come to realize that this book, Wrecked and Redeemed, is not just a book about my story. It's a book about your story which means it's a book about our story. But if you're also paying close attention, you've actually come to realize that it's also a book about how we are to do church. This book, yes, it's my story. Yes, it's the New Hope story, so it's our story together. But this book has given me a chance to bring back a lot of themes and a lot of teaching that I did in the early days of this church to show and put on display precisely how we believe you should do church. And what you need to know is for 17 years, we've been incredibly intentional about the way we do church. In this chapter, chapter three, I've called the main thing. It's not original. If you've read Stephen Covey's work, some of you are leadership gurus, so you've read his book, First Things First, Stephen Covey says this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, that's a great leadership principle, but let me tell you something. I have stolen it in the name of Jesus and use it in the church because there is nothing more important for a people of God to keep the main thing the main thing. And I don't know if you know this or not. If you're a pastor, you definitely know this. You've been out there. You've studied the church. Here's the deal. The church, more so than any other organization on the planet, has this unbelievable proclivity for getting distracted and doing a lot of things that we should not be doing. The church, man, we are so guilty. You, you study churches across our land, you will see a lot of churches doing things that they have absolutely no calling, biblical grounding to do. Why don't you read this out loud with me on the count of three? One, two, three, go. 
the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, if you believe that, then you gotta start asking yourself, what's the main thing? I didn't know when I was a kid, when I would be laying in the den of my home, 2361 Fontana Drive, I had no idea that while I would lay there with my brothers, I was the youngest of three boys and my dad, and we would watch sports. We watched lots of sports. And when we would watch the NBA or the NFL, or the MLB, Major League Baseball, if we watched any of those, notice I did not mention lacrosse <laughs> or soccer. We were the Southern three, baby, baseball, basketball, and football. I didn't know back then that when, when I was watching that and I would always see this guy, maybe you've seen him, he would always be at a sporting event and he would always position himself right in front of the camera and he would always hold a neon sign. Do, do you, have you seen him? And you're not gonna believe this. I saw him in the 80s and he's still there today. He hasn't aged a bit. He's still on the major sporting networks and you've seen it. It's the guy who's always holding. John 3, 16, the mug hasn't moved in 30 years. Still right there. You know, you see, you see other people doing it, right? John 3, 16. And you gotta understand that when I read John 3, 16 for the very first time, I was enamored with what many folks have called over the years, the gospel within the gospel. Truly the main thing. And so take yourself with me and just listen to this scripture. And, and here's, the, here's the risky thing about this scripture. You've heard it so many times. And you do know, don't you, that there can be danger in being overly familiar with a passage of scripture. So try to hear it with fresh ears and if it's okay with you, I'm going to read it from the Bible that the chaplain gave me in a jail cell. And I should warn you that this is the scriptures that I first read in this Bible. But I should also warn you, this is in the old translation that I like to call the old King Jimmy. This is what some of you grew up hearing, right? The King James Version. But this is what I heard. This is what I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, you haven't, you haven't heard this word in a while, his only begotten. Everybody say begotten. begotten. His only begotten son. That whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now we know that verse. Listen to verse 17, equally as powerful. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Might be saved. And so I read this. And then later on, a couple months, I stayed in there quite a while. A couple months later, I got on my knees. You've heard that story in that jail cell and I prayed to accept Christ. And I kept growing and I kept reading the, the gospels. And then the day came where I got out and I couldn't go free right away. I had to go do a couple months in a drug rehabilitation center. So I went there, but all the while, a very controlled kind of environment. I kept reading the Bible and doing therapy. And then the preachers would come in on Tuesday nights and preach the gospel. And I never missed a Tuesday night gospel hour. And I was there every Tuesday and it was all so good. And then I was just so excited and I was like chomping at the bit. I was fired up. I mean, I was really lost before I got saved and then I was really saved. 
And I got out of the treatment center and I was like a one man mission, dude. I was on mission to introduce as many people as I possibly could to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I got out, I was fired up and I'd get in a 1978 Toyota Tercel and I'd ride all across the state of South Carolina speaking to anybody about Jesus. But then I ran into the church and I started to encounter so much Stuff, I could use a different word. <laughs> so much stuff in the church that I started to realize that there's this huge disconnect between what I was reading in the Bible, the main thing, and then what I was encountering in the churches that I visited. Let me just unpack that a little bit for you so you kind of get a, a full glimpse of what I'm talking about. Some of you have had good experiences in church. Some of you have had bad experiences in church. And you've heard me say before, I love the church. Can I get an amen? amen. Like I'm not a church basher. I believe God uses all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. I am head over heels in love with the church. There's nothing like the church when she's hitting on all cylinders and getting it done. Conversely, so there's nothing more detrimental and nothing more damaging than the church when she's off mission. And so I went into one church one day and I got there early, man. I had the Bible like some of you and I'm reading the Bible and I'm ready for the worship and I'm ready for the preacher to come out and preach the gospel and I'm leaning in and all of a sudden I get a tap on my left shoulder. And this sweet little elderly couple who I thought was sweet until they looked down at me and said, you're sitting in our seat. Excuse me? Oh, I didn't get the memo. There's reserved seating here. I went to another church. You'll read about this in the chapter. I, I went to another church where if you walked in and you didn't have a suit and tie on, I don't know what they did for the ladies if they didn't have dresses on, but I know what they did for the guys. If you didn't have a suit and tie on, an usher would come to you and tell you you had to have a coat on to enter into the doors. Now you might think that's slack and it is slack, but this church had thought about the way to solve that problem. So then they would usher you over to a closet where they would then fit you in a sports coat. And then they would give you a little card and when the service was over, it was your job to come back and give them the card with the coat that they let you wear. And then if you had a coat that you had or a shirt, or, they would put that back in your hands. And I'm like, for real? <laughs> like, come on. If you're going to make somebody wear a coat, here's an idea. Give them the stinking coat. <laughs> but at this church, you had to go back and give them back their coat. And tell you another story. This is when I started speaking at churches. I was in another church and I was, it was a traditional church. And so I was in the parlor. They have the parlors, you know. And I was in the parlor and I was looking over my nose, getting ready to teach. And then I looked out of the window and I saw, I saw the car pull up. It reminded me of my 1978 Toyota Tercel I was just telling you about. But it, it, was, a, it was a Pinto, like a Pinto. You remember those? Yeah. Glory to God. Where did the Pintos go? It was a Pinto and it was rusted out like my blue Toyota. And I looked out of the window and I thought, oh man, that's awesome. Cause I could tell man, the car was, it was in bad shape. And then I saw her turn the car off and I could even tell through the window that it was one of those cars. Maybe you had one of these when you were younger. It was a car that when you turned it off, it didn't want to turn off. <laughs> you, and, then, and then she got out. And I got even more excited because I could tell this woman was in need and her attire, her clothes, if you will, was commensurate with her 
dilapidated vehicle. And so I left the parlor to go out to the side door to welcome her, but unfortunately the head usher got to her before me. And he said, ma'am, at this church we only wear our Sunday best. And I saw that precious daughter of the Most High God turn around and walk back to her car and crank it up and drive away. Would you think less of me if I told you my first response was to punch the head usher <laughs> in the throat? But then I would be sinning. So I didn't. And I went back into the parlor and I tried not to get my blood pressure too high and I tried to pray and I tried to get because I had to go on stage and speak. And then I can tell you one final example of a teenage girl who showed up at a church and she was pregnant out of wedlock and a chairman from the board of elders you know about those the board of elders contacted the chairman and the chairman contacted her it was a small church so everybody knew everything and he met with that young woman and he told her hey since you are living in sin and you decided to have a child out of wedlock we're going to ask that you just move on and raise that child on your own. And so here I'm experiencing the church and I'm a student of the church. And I started to realize that there is this huge disconnect between what the Bible teaches and what we see in many churches across our land. But this is what you have to understand. Please hear this. This is why we started New Hope Church. We didn't start New Hope Church. Maybe you've never thought about this before. We didn't start New Hope Church 17 years ago because there's a shortage of churches in the South. <laughs> you've noticed this. Here, here's an idea. On your way home today, count the number of churches you pass by. <laughs> there's no shortage of churches in the South in America. We started this church because I kept visiting church after church after church after church when I was at Duke. And I started to realize there was this massive disconnect between what the Bible teaches and the way in which religious people have construed the message and got all kind of fog in the pews, if you will. And we've lost the clarity of the main thing. For God so, what? loved the world that he what gave. gave ours is a loving God ours is a giving God his what only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life do you know what that word whosoever means you're not going to believe this. I, I, I did a word study on it this week. Went to the Greek and everything. Whosoever, you're not going to believe this. It means whosoever. <laughs> it means whoever. No filter. No exclusion. Based upon pre-existing conditions. <laughs> it means no dress code. No behavioral code. No exceptions. Whoever means whoever, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your socioeconomic level, regardless of what you did last night, regardless of what side of the tracks you grew up on, whoever means 
Whoever, whoever that has done whatever, and he that dresses like in whatever, or she who has been wherever, come one, come all to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and his church. It doesn't matter, you are welcome. And so for 17 years, this is the message that we have been holding up. No mean-spiritedness. No Pharisees permitted. You do know that the Pharisees were some of the most religious people in Jesus' day. And they got on his last nerve. And by the way, he got on their last nerve. You know why? Because he just said, come on, come on. Let anyone who wants to come, come. No perfect people allowed. Get out of the way. No human agency to distract and keep people away from God. And so we created this mission. This is why we exist as a church. We exist, read this out loud with me. We exist to reach all people for Jesus. Good job, all the campuses. Teach people the Bible and how to be self-feeders release vision carriers and other churches to the glory of God. Reach who? All people. And teach them what? The Bible. Let me pause on this next one. And how to be self-feeders. Hey, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this today. But if the only time you hear the word of God is on Sunday, you will never mature in your faith and grow to be all that God wants you to be. You have to learn to feed yourself. You have to learn to open up the Bible together, together with loved ones or by yourself. Do reading plans. You need to be studying the word throughout. And on Sunday, listen, I'm gonna do everything I can to slice and dice and divide the word of God. And I'm gonna do all I can do to put it in front of you. But some of you need to get in the habit of reading the word on your own how to be self-feeders and release vision carriers and other churches to the glory of God. A good mission statement in a ministry department or in a church, it tells us what we should do. Do you know that? But it also tells us what we should not do. So a good mission statement talks to us about, hey, here's the ministry activities you should do and here's the ministry activities you should not do. For us, here's the campuses you should launch, but here's the campuses and the locations you should not go to. Here's the staff you should hire. We run everything through this filter of mission. And it helps us decide what we are going to do. Now, if you open up your Bible earlier, we went straight to verse 16 and 17. Now I'm gonna ask you to throw it in rewind and go back to the beginning of John chapter three and let's dig in to the biblical text today. Now there was a, what? I've already mentioned that you, the Pharisees were the utmost religious people in that day and age, which should cause, if you're a religious person, should cause you great consternation because Christianity is not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion will jack you up. Religion, if you're not careful, will turn you into a mean-spirited Pharisee. But a relationship with Jesus will soften your heart and cause you to love the world as God loves the world. 
Now, there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was in the elite Jewish ruling council. This was a big deal. He came to Jesus what? Came to Jesus what? This, this, you might not know this, but for those of you who are old enough, this is the original Nick at night. He comes, <laughs> Nick at night, and he said, Rabbi, now pay close attention. Even though he was this religious zealot that I'm talking about, he does speak to Jesus in an endearing way. He refers to Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform, help me out, the? Now right there, if you've been digging this series and you're tracking along with me, you know what signs means. From here on out, whenever you see the word signs in the gospel of John, you're gonna know exactly what it means. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's all about miracles. In John's gospel, he refers to them as signs. In the gospel of John, signs had one purpose. Somebody bless me so I know you're paying attention. The signs were to do what? You guys are amazing. The signs were to point to the glory of God. The miracles, the signs report to the glory of God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, last week, I put a graphic before you and you locked into this. So just by way of review, the word, John 1, 14, the word became what, church? The word became flesh. Dwelt among us full of grace and truth. The flesh performed signs, miracles. But again, the Johannine author refers to it as signs. The signs reveal glory. Last week, I taught you two different variations of the word glory. One is an attribute, one is a verb. The glory as an attribute speaks to the majesty, the splendor, the holiness, the divinity of God. Glory as a verb speaks for the way in which you and I boast, not in self, but we boast in and we praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen? amen. The signs reveal the glory and the glory demands worship. Demands it. So if you notice, you've got word and worship at the very pinnacle of John's understanding. Now, you all know that you don't have to worship. I say demands, there is an option. You can reject it and perish. John three sixteen, For whosoever believeth shall have eternal life. Those that don't shall perish. So watch this. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now that's actually a great, great question. How can this happen? I would imagine that if you and I were there having a conversation with Jesus, we'd ask the same thing. What are you talking about, Jesus? How, how, how can someone be born again? Now watch this. Jesus answered, very truly. Now circle and underline that phrase, very truly. You see this over and over and over in John's gospel. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, circle, line, circle underline it, and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, 
but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Now, I'm going I'm to try to teach you something here on salvation according to John's gospel that is not something that you've probably heard before. You, we just always talk about being born again. But Jesus says you must be born of what? Water and what? Water and the Spirit. Write this down. This is not in your teaching notes, I don't think. When Jesus says we must be born of water and the Spirit, Jesus is saying that we are to be born again and born anew. Born what? Again and born anew. Let me explain to you what I'm saying. There's a physical realm and there's a spiritual realm. So when Jesus says you must be born again, born of water and the spirit, let's talk about the water first. When you were born, you came from your mama. And in most cases, your mother's water broke. And soon after, your mama's water broke. Look at your neighbor. This is fun in church because you can do it with an attitude. Look at your neighbor and say, yo mama. Y'all did, did that better than I thought you would. Look at your other neighbor, but this time you get a, get a little more sass to it. Look, look at your other neighbor, all the campus, say, yo mama. Yo mama. <laughs> How many of y'all, when you were kids, this was my story. Man, when you were kids, you, you would bust somebody's chops about their mama. We told all kind of yo mama jokes. Am I alone? As, as yo mama, and now my kids come home telling yo mama jokes. And I'm like, guys, no, don't do that. Don't do that. There was once a time when your mother, praise be to God, chose to have you. Hallelujah. And her water broke. And soon thereafter, you were born. Praise God you were born. Praise God for your life. Jesus comes along and says, you must be born again, born of water. Watch this. Make this note in your margin of your Bible. This is symbolic. This is clearly directional toward the fact that when you are born again, you go from the mother's womb and her water breaking to you live in your life, you receive Christ, you're born again, right into the waters of baptism. It's very symbolic. In John's gospel, it's very clear. Remember John the Baptist, he's preaching, there's baptizing people. It's amazing. This is, a, this is a clear connection to the waters of baptism, which gives me a chance to say, I'd be so remiss if I didn't, baptism, April 28th. Yeah. Everybody here, listen, some of you have accepted Christ lately. Others of you, you can't even remember when you were baptized. Your, your mama <laughs> took you before a church when you were a little kid someday. And they dedicated you. They didn't baptize you. They might have called it baptism. But this is what the Bible means when it talks about believers' baptism. April 28th, you need to get into the waters of baptism. Go ahead and mark it down. This is the Sunday after Easter. And some of you are like afraid of water. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Listen, I'm batting a thousand. I've never lost a one. <laughs> we will take you down and we will bring you back up, right? But it's the water and that's in the physical realm. But then check this out. You must born, be born again of water and the what? There's a spiritual realm as well. It's born again and it's born anew. And in the spiritual realm, what Jesus is reminding us is if baptism is in the physical realm and baptism doesn't save you, it's like this wedding ring. It's a symbol of my commitment to my wife. Baptism is a symbol of my commitment to Christ. That's, that's in the physical realm, but there's the spiritual realm as well that we must be born of the spirit. And that is this whole idea 
that when we are born again, God actually changes us. God actually starts to do a transformative work in our lives where the old is gone and the new has what? You know the Bible, you know where I'm taking you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, out loud, really strong, ready? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Now, here's the other thing I tell you before we just keep studying this passage. I wanna to talk to you about a pattern that you see in John's gospel. It's actually formulaic. You see it over and over and over, and I'm gonna use the same diagram format, if you will, that I just used a moment ago. The word, the logos, did what, church? Became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now watch this. In John's gospel, once Jesus was dwelling on planet Earth, there would be these catalytic, big events that would happen in Jesus's ministry. I couldn't come up with anything better to call it than a Jesus event. In this case, it's Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. There's a Jesus event. Now watch this. You'll see this over and over as you keep reading through John's gospel. After the Jesus event, there's a dialogue. Okay? Dialogue. After the dialogue, there is a discourse. To which some of you are thinking, well, what's the difference between a dialogue and a discourse? A dialogue is just a couple people conversing. We're just having a conversation. In the Gospel of John, the event happens. There's a dialogue, a conversation back and forth, and then it turns and once it turns, it goes into a discourse. Discourse is different than dialogue. A discourse is where a person typically of authority is speaking about a certain matter. Jesus starts to teach in the discourse and then we come upon critical theology in the gospel of John. Now I see a lot of heads shaking because you're starting to pick up on the uniqueness of John's gospel. The Synoptic Gospels, which I've said every week thus far, is a more detailed-oriented narrative of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're very consistent, Matthew, Mark, Luke, very consistent in the narrative. John is writing so that the church can develop a robust and faithful theology. John was written later than the Synoptic. Somebody bless me. About when was it written? 75 to 90 AD, you're getting it. And John has had time to think about it. And John knows that the synoptics have given us a detail-oriented telling of the, of the life of Jesus. John is giving us a theology. And in John's gospel, again, you see the flesh, a Jesus event, dialogue, discourse, and theology, which makes you know that we're about to get to some very, very rich theology in the gospel of John. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? Can I just interpret that for you for a moment? <laughs> you gotta learn to loosen up and read scripture. Basically, Jesus is saying, dude, you are a religious dude, but you are an idiot. How, how do you not understand these things? You're even in the Jewish ruling council. And you don't understand. Watch this. Very truly, see it? Very truly, over and over. I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people, you hear it? You people do not accept our testimony. 
I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Let's continue. No one has ever gone into heaven, heaven except the one who came from heaven, i.e. the son of man. This is a, a phrase that you see referring to Jesus a lot in the gospels, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, this is amazing what Jesus does. He goes all the way back into the Old Testament. You find it in Exodus and you find it in Numbers 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus, a good Jewish boy, knows the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He knows that in Numbers 21, verses one through eight, and in Exodus, that Moses, after he got finished leading ancient Israel for 40 stinking years in the wilderness, Moses needed a GPS in a bad way. They're wandering for 40 years. When he gets to the promised land, if you know the Old Testament, you know this, Moses would lift up a bronze snake. And in the ancient Israel mindset, they believed that if they got injured in battle or if they got snake bitten or whatever the case may be, if they made their way to the bronze snake that Moses was holding up, they believed that they would be healed and not die. If, if you're tracking with me, say, bring it. Jesus says, in the same way Moses held up the snake, the son of man, me, I, I'm going to be lifted up. Where, church? On a cross. And he who believes in what I do for them on the cross will be saved and have eternal life in Jesus. That is is amazing theology. And just for clarity's sake, this is where we stumble upon the verse that we started in out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. Remember last week, if you weren't here, pick it up or check it out online. I'm gonna give you a quiz. Can I give you a quiz? <clears throat> last week, we talked about the glory, remember? In the last part of the message, I talked to you about three key points that come from John chapter two, the wine, uh, the water turned to wine. And I talked to you about the glory of revelation. Remember that, number one. In John chapter two, it was clear that Jesus is trying to make it known early on, he is God. Remember that glory of revelation. The second glory that I talked to you about was the glory of extravagance. Some of you are still upset that Jesus turned water to wine, but you really need to build a bridge and get over it. He did. And there's dangers to alcohol and you have to be careful, but Jesus turned water to wine. Not only did he turn water to wine, he turned a lot of it to wine. And it was high, high quality, right? And that, and I told you, if you focus on the alcohol and the issue, you really missed the point. The point was, ours is a God of extravagance. Remember that? The third glory, this is for bonus points. I wanna see who remembers this. The third glory that I talked about was the glory of what? First was, golly, how did I get so blessed to serve a people like you? 
the glory of, they said, we're in the front row. <laughs> Y'all were those people in school, weren't you? Yeah. But I love you. I like front row people. But I bet my balcony people knew that as well. And my people back, it was the glory of victory, right? Let me show you something. The word Nicodemus comes from a compound of two Greek words, Nicodemus. The first is Nike, just like it sounds, Nike. And um, I don't know if you know about Nike, but they are horrible at making basketball shoes right about now. <laughs> horrible. Their stock dropped a billion dollars in one day after Zion Williamson's big old honking foot blew out of them. And I was thinking, I wish it had dropped five billion. But anyway, Nike, I don't know if you know this, but the Greek word Nike means victory. Don't miss this, this is so stinking cool. The second word that makes up the word Nicodemus is Demas. Do you see it? Nike and Demas. Demas means people. If you put it together, the literal understanding of the word Nicodemus, it literally means victory of the people. Jesus says, if you want to know ultimate victory, here it is. In the same way that Moses lifted up the snake, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. Because remember, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave what? Gave his life, his one and only son. And if you believe in that, if you stake your foundation and your identity and your purpose and your passion and your hope and everything about your life, if you stake it on Jesus who is lifted up on a cross for you, died, dead, buried three days and rose to new life, if you will ground your life in that, you will experience ultimate victory. Not only victory, when you die, you will go to everlasting life. You shall not, what? Perish. But listen, the beauty of the gospel is that you can experience victory here and now. You can experience what it means to live the very best life possible. When we get to John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly. So let me be crystal clear in closing. The Jesus event was the encounter with old Nick at night. The dialogue took place, which transitioned into, uh, 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 just went blank, dialogue, discourse. The discourse, Jesus is teaching. The teaching results in what? Let me make it as plain as I can possibly make it today. Here's the theology of Jesus in John chapter three. Option one, if you do not believe in Jesus, you are born only once. And what's that word? <clears throat> Perish when you die. That's not Benji's words. And I know that's not politically correct. And I know that bothers some of you. And here's where some of your postmodern minds just went. Well, I don't like that. I, I, don't, I think God's all loving. Like, why would God ever send anyone to hell? Oh, dear sir, dear ma'am, you just missed the whole point of it. Listen, 
God doesn't send anyone to hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Remember, God is all loving. God gave his one and only son. God doesn't send someone to hell. Someone chooses to not receive and believe the greatest news the world has ever known. And here's where your mind also went, just when I said that. Like, I, I live in the same world you do, so I know what you're thinking. You just started thinking about, well, what about the person who's never heard? That's a great question. And here's the way I answer it. Steal it if you want, use it if you want. Here's the way I answer it, and I believe the Bible backs this up. First of all, number one, in the book of Romans, the Bible says that all of creation proclaims the glory of God that a person can actually come to encounter and know that there is a God just from creation. From those of you who are outdoorsy people, you get that. I love that. But even still, for those who've never heard the gospel, for that tribe in some corner of the world or that people group in another corner of the world, and they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, I'm gonna leave that one with God. God's sovereign. He's loving. And the Bible says that when we die, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Who am I to decide or declare what's gonna happen when that person who's never heard comes before a gracious God? I personally believe in the sovereignty and the love of Almighty God. And God, God will save who God wants to save. And that person might have a chance in that very moment. But listen, if they've never heard, see, I believe we're held accountable based on what we've heard. And you've heard. You've heard. And the option number one, even though it's not politically correct today, is if you do not believe in Jesus... You will die, and you will have only been born once, and you will perish, and you will go to a place that the Bible calls hell. It's destruction, it's Christless, it's eternal damnation, it's eternal suffering, it's the absence of anything good, it's all of those things that you've heard. Or option number two, if you do believe in Jesus, you were born again, remember, twice. Once from your mother's womb and once born of water and the Spirit. And, you, and you're what? You're what? You're saved. Say it out loud one more time. You're what? Saved. And you receive everlasting life when you die. Yeah, you should. You actually should celebrate that. You don't have to be shy about that. And everything that hell was and is that I can't even begin to fully describe to you, heaven is everything opposite. It's all of God. It's all of God's people. It's all of love. The Bible says it's all joy. There are no tears in heaven. It's everything good and it is eternal. So I have to ask you as I wrap up today, what are you building your life upon? What is your foundation? What, what's going to be the bedrock 
of not only how you live your life here and now, but what you believe is going to happen when you die. Because the very hinge on which the door of the church opens and closes is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. The world includes you. He so loved you that he gave his one and only son for you. That whoever, whoever includes you, whoever believes in him shall not perish and go to hell, but shall have everlasting life. That's the cornerstone of the church. That's, that's the main thing. And so we as a church should always be committed to doing anything and everything we can do to get every single living, breathing person into the presence of God so they can hear this message and decide for themselves. Because again, God doesn't send anyone to hell. A person chooses it. And it causes me to ask you, have you chosen it? Better put, have you chosen him? Have you chosen him as the cornerstone of your life? We're gonna sing that song at the end here, Cornerstone. And I don't know if you've ever noticed on the front of our building, we have a cornerstone. 2009, Easter, when we built phase one of this building. We've gone into phase two now, but phase one is this cornerstone. And maybe you can read it. It says Easter 2009, dedicated to the, and why don't you read the, the bottom part? This would be a good eye exam for you to see if you can actually read this. Dedicated to the, come on, glory of God the Father, Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I see some of you going, we got some ophthalmologists in this church. You need to find one. It's the cornerstone. And the Bible speaks about the cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, 16, the Bible says that, that God has laid a precious stone in Zion, a foundation. For those of you who are builders, particularly with old stone buildings, you know this. Every stone in the building is important, but none are as important as the cornerstone. It's crucial. It is to ensure that the building is square and stable. It, it is on which the rest of the building's weight kind of tends to rest. It starts with the cornerstone. Have you believed in Jesus Christ who will be the cornerstone of your life, the very foundation of your life. Look at how Paul would say it in Ephesians. Why don't we read one more passage of scripture together? But listen to what Paul says to the church about Jesus as the cornerstone. Go. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Great job. Let's continue. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So I'm gonna invite you in just a moment 
to stand. And if you are a believer, we are going to sing about the cornerstone of Jesus. But how dare us stand up and sing without giving some of you an opportunity to ground your life, to fix your life in Jesus, to believe in him, to know that you know that you know that when you die, because you can know, beloved, when you die, you will not go to a place called hell and perish forever, but you will go to a place called heaven with all the apostles and the saints and you and me and the person to your right and the person to your left and the person behind you. And you can know that you know that you are a saved child of the most high God. Do you know him? Have you believed in his name? Have you believed in what he did for you when he spread his arms this wide and he said, I love you this much. Believe in me and you'll not only have heaven when you die, you'll have abundant life here and now. Will you pray with me? All heads bowed across this place and at all of our campuses, all eyes closed. If you are a believer, oh my, pray for the people around you right now. God, as believers, we're so grateful for the richness of this gospel and how the word of the Lord is just coming alive as we dig deep into this gospel text. God, I pray for the believers and I pray for the movement today that we would be committed to never, no, never getting in the way of any person, regardless of anything, that whosoever wants to come, God, that New Hope Church would be known as a place where you can come just as you are. But God, I thank you <laughs> that you love us too much to leave us there. And that if we would just get people into your presence, we don't have to clean them up. That's your job. Our job is to just usher them into your presence. God, may we be a church forever committed to taking all human hindrances out of the way and letting anyone come. And Father, I can't help but believe that in a crowd this size and at any of our campuses or maybe online or on television, somebody is sitting out there and they've never had that moment. They've never been born again. And they know that even as I've been teaching, they know that you are tugging at their heart. You're engaging their mind and you're calling them home. You're calling them to the foot of the cross. You're calling them to forsake the world and believe in Jesus. You're calling them to build their one and only life on the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. If that's you, I'm not going to belabor the invitation. I'm just gonna ask you on the count of three. 
I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand right where you are. One, God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son. Two, that son, Jesus Christ, showed us how to live and spread wide his arms and was lifted up. And in this very moment, he is drawing you to himself that you might be saved. And on that first Easter Sunday morning, God the Father looked down upon his only begotten son and he raised him to new life that you might know and have victory and everlasting life now and forever. Three, just raise your hand, lift it up high. Just lift it up. I wanna pray for you. Lift it up high. All heads bowed, eyes, I see you guys back here. Hold them up high, I wanna just keep praying for you. I see you over there, hold them up. I see you over here, ma'am, praise God for you. Praise God. I see you, yeah, I see you back there. Lord Jesus, I see you up here. Father God, you know you are sovereign and you know the man, the child, the student who is reaching out to you right now. Lord, lifting our hands, do not save us. Getting baptized does not save us. What saves us is your son, Jesus, and what he did on the cross for us. If that's you and you just lifted your hands, just say, Lord Jesus, come into my life today. I am a sinner and I need to be saved. I believe in you and I build my life upon you, the chief cornerstone of it all. Just say this, say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Unleash the Holy Spirit in my life. Help me follow you all my days until I die and I face you and I cross over into everlasting life. Lord, we pray all of this in the one and only name of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. And all the people of God at all of our campus locations said together, amen, amen and amen and amen.